The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. Big Tech's big week. The mega caps all reporting earnings. The investment committee is weighing in on what's really at stake for the markets and your money. Joining me for the hour today, Bryn Talkington, Amy Raskin, Rob Seachin, Jim Labenthal, Joe Terranova. It's good to see everybody today. Let's check stocks. Judgment week has begun. There's the Dow, 35,747. Carl just said S&P at a new high, 45,62. NASDAQ is the big winner thus far today in its very big week. The 10-year note yield at 163. All right, Bryn, this is it. $9 trillion worth of earnings reports coming this week from tech. From big tech, Facebook, Microsoft, Alphabet, Apple, Amazon, you're right in the thick of it. you got a big position in the queues. Are you nervous? Nah, no, not, not at all. I think that, you know, Microsoft, especially Microsoft, is going to deliver really strong numbers. I think Satya Nadella has such a positive halo effect. And I think that, like with a Microsoft, you have LinkedIn, you have gaming, you have the cloud, um, you have Outlook. You have so many different indiv- individual verticals. They're gonna do, I think they're going to do really well. I think as it relates to Facebook, we know they're going to have great earnings, but I don't think it has anything to do with earnings this quarter. There, whereas, whereas Microsoft has this halo effect over it, Facebook has a really big rain cloud over it. And so I'm not, I'm not sure if, if the market will you know, look through the current negativity on Facebook, because I do think their earnings from advertising are still going to be so dominant. So I would just like sit still, watch these earnings and not make any moves, um, not make any moves um, off the earnings that are coming out this week. All right. Farmer Jim, you got Apple, you got Alphabet, you got Microsoft. What do you think going into this big week? How critical is it? Oh, I think, look, I think it's very critical, and it's not just tech. You've got one-third of S&P 500 companies in total reporting this week, and more industries than tech. I'll get to that in a second. But within tech, you know, I, I think Google and Microsoft are going to be just fine. I really don't see the threats to their business models. Um, Apple, you know, look, Apple could go either way because of supply chain shortages that are clearly pushing out lead times for the iPhone. But, you know, as Bryn alluded to, the one stock, and I don't own it, that has a rain cloud over it is Facebook. Uh, we saw what happened with Snap last week with the iOS update and how that's affected their ad revenue. I think that's got to affect Facebook as well. And then, you know, you just have this drumbeat which keeps picking up of negative news flow around the stock, uh, whether it's the Facebook papers, the congressional uh, hearings, the, the fake news, the influencing of, of elections. There is a pretty big cloud around Facebook, and I'm going to stay away from that for now. Hey. When we get to it, I'd love to talk. I'll tell you, Scott, I'll tell you, more important yeah. to me are the industrials okay. than the tech technology stocks, but you tell me where you want to go. Well, since we're talking about mega cap tech, Jim, I think we're going to stay right in mega cap tech, but I appreciate the suggestion, okay? (laughs) Just hold your horses on the industrials because we'll get there at some point. Maybe not today, but we will. All right. Amy Raskin, you're moderately underweight tech. Does that mean you're expecting some disappointments this week? 
you know, we don't call individual quarters, but um, just generally speaking, I think tech has had its run for the most part. I think Fang has has had its run. Um, the setup for the last decade was diametrically opposite for, than it we have going into the next decade. I don't think this is where you're going to get your long-term alpha. The only one of the stocks that were overweight is Google, um, and it's been a big win for us this year. I think we'll probably start pairing that back at some point as well. Um, they were the big winners. We have a, we still own a lot of them. We have a lot of gains in them. Um, we manage mostly taxable money. It's a good problem to have, but um, again, we're looking elsewhere for alpha. Wow. Joe, you hear what Amy just said? Scott. I you did. hear what Amy just said? I did. and I. We don't think this did, is where you're res- going to get your alpha. Talking about big tech. Okay. I mean, she may be on an island yeah. because I don't know a lot of people who think that. Uh, yourself included, Joe. No, no. I, I, I'm staying with technology. And I think uh, what we've been able to do here in the month of October is really remove this, this claim that people have made where long-duration assets – Yields moving higher, that's negative for technology. You know what, Scott? Technology isn't as much of long-duration asset as we previously thought. These are asset-light businesses. A 10-year treasury has gone from 140 to 165. Guess what? Technology this month is up 6%. So I think the big five really did their job when markets were in that tenuous position and the S&P was challenging some of the moving averages and down 5%. They acted in a very resilient, uh, resilient capacity, except for Microsoft. That's really the only one that has established a new 52-week high That's right. as the S&P moved higher here. But overall, I think be, you know large-cap technology is exactly where you want to be, and I think it goes beyond the big five. Look today, you've got Oracle, NVIDIA, Intuit, all making 52-week highs. So I think that's the right place to be. I think Broadcom is also making that 52-week high, and I'm going to stay overweight uh, the technology space, but I'm going to do it with large cap. All right, so I got Microsoft up 10% uh, month-to-date. It's far and away the outperformer of the mega-cap techs. Now, Netflix has obviously had a, a nice month, too, but in terms of the direct competition and some of the other big tech players specifically, Microsoft uh, has been the one. Reiterated overweight today, J.P. Morgan, $310. Reiterated outperformed today, Evercore ISI, $325. Siege, I'm going to get to you in a second, but, I mean, Amy's just brought fighting words. Um, yeah, Bryn, no, but that's my, oh, sorry, but this is my point. Everybody likes Microsoft. Everybody knows that they're going to have a good quarter. You know, where, is, where are you going to get the surprise here? Um, nobody's questioning their fundamentals. There's a big difference between a good, great company and a great stock. And Microsoft has been a great stock and is a great company. But from a longer term perspective, you know, where are you going from? With, with, hey, I mean, from I don't know. Maybe you just dance with. Maybe you just dance with Ubrunya. I mean, if these are the stocks that have continued to deliver the alpha, Bryn, I'm going to give you a chance to respond to Amy because you're the one who is with the big position in the queues. You've got the Microsofts, the Apples, and the Amazons. She just said this is not the place to get alpha. Why is it? Well, well, first of all, I think investors need to remember, in pursuit of alpha, investors rarely get beta. 
And the cues to me, you know, is the NASDAQ 100. It's a passively managed market cap, 100 top non-financials in the NASDAQ. And I think an interesting fun fact about Microsoft, if you look back at the S&P 20 years ago, there are two stocks that still remain in the top 10 holdings of the S&P. That is J&J and Microsoft. And so I think a lot of people continuing to say, how much longer can Microsoft grow? But I think their best days are ahead of them. I do agree, though, with Amy about the best days in terms of managing clients' expectations about returns. Because if you look at the NASDAQ going back to the 60s, we are at the top decile of 10-year returns, meaning that the last 10 years, the NASDAQ has done 20% per year for the last 10 years. The only other time you got close to that was in 2000, where you peaked up to 27%. So I think that are we going to continue to get 20 plus percent returns for the next five and 10 years? I don't think so. But I think you're still going to get wonderful growth out of names like Microsoft, Microsoft especially. All right. Seachin. NASDAQ's having yes, a nice sir. day today, okay? It's up three-quarters of 1%. It's outperforming. Now, I don't want you to tell me all the reasons why you want to own big tech, because, I, I mean, I hear it every day, so I don't need it regurgitated. I need you to tell me how quality they are, and they're the this, and they're the that, and everything else. I want you to tell me how much is riding on these reports this week. We already know why everybody loves them. Well, why and if these reports matter to the magnitude that they do this week? Well, it's just the construction and the index to God. So the, they definitely matter. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to agree with Amy and I'm going to agree with Bren. You're going to get alpha from the cyclicals. A quarter of the S&P has reported so far. 86% of companies are beating earnings. It's led by cyclicals with 80% earnings growth. And tech is up 30% year on year. So, I mean, I think I think Alpha is going to be delivered by the cyclicals. But for me, you know, our largest position is Microsoft. Our second largest position is Google. Um, the I think these names are important because they tend to be service driven rather than hard parts. They're less geared towards inflation mishaps and supply disruptions. Um, there can be volatility always around interest rates and privacy concerns. But when you think about an environment where you might have stagflation and pricing power is important, it's hard for me to see companies delivering the quality of earnings long term like these. So I think you need a barbell structure that allows you to maintain your exposure to names like these and still get alpha from some of the cyclicals. And I think that's the right way to do it. That's what we've been doing. And, uh, you know, these are two of the biggest. We, we actually sold out a bunch uh, of Amazon in May. We were way overweight Amazon coming out of the pandemic. We sold out of some of Amazon, rotated into Google because of some of the cyclical characteristics of Google that I do not think are going away. And so I think you can move within the sector. And I would be surprised if there's any major disappointments out of any of these names. Okay, so we're looking, uh, bottom, Facebook, we're looking, hang on, we're looking at the bottom of the screen. The Dow sets a new intraday high, just like the S&P did. Because I'm going to stop you there. Uh, for a second, Rob, because I want to move the ball around. Uh, Joe, I'll tell you why these matter so much, because the, the whole reason why you haven't had a correction greater than 5% is because these names didn't roll. They didn't roll over. You can't afford to have these names roll over now. We're just, we just moved the ball forward. We said, well, the correction's finished. It was 5%, mm -hmm. and that's it. And the only reason we felt confident yeah. saying that is because these stocks didn't roll over. And we didn't think they were going to. Well, they better not now. 
Well, I think they would have to roll over as a group, Scott. I mean, clearly Amazon has been struggling since July, and there's a little bit of uh, underperformance for Facebook uh, in there as well. But I think the entirety of the group, I think you would have to have Alphabet and Microsoft miss dramatically for uh, the upward trend in the S&P to be reversed. And going back to what Rob said, that just overall depends uh, because of the, the large composition in the index itself. So I'm a little suspicious of that. I actually think we'll come out of the big five earnings uh, still doing well for the S&P uh, unless there's just this universal negative surprise in entirety for uh, the big five. I'll tell you what, Bryn, who's, who's forecast the big five ha- has upset is Mike Wilson, who had been calling for fire and ice, right? This greater than 10 percent correction. And really, the, the only way to get there was for these stocks to roll over, and, and it hasn't happened. And as the market has continuously moved back into record territory day after day after seemingly day over the last week, I still feel the capitulation's coming for Mr. Wilson. He says today, growth continues to slow, but it may take longer for markets to price it. Equity markets may remain well bid in the near term, he says. In short, the ice portion of our fire and ice narrative may take longer to get priced, even as the evidence mounts. Okay, so he's trying to stick to his guns. I respect him for that. But I still feel like he's capitulating a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. It's tough to be a strategist and... You know, realistically, we should get a correction. You know, we average the corrections going back 41 years, about 14 percent intra-year peak to trough decline. But you have to go back and remember in 2017, that peak to trough decline was less than 4 percent. And so what? We've had a 5 percent correction multiple times. This could easily be setting up for another 2017. But investors need to remember what came after 2017 was 2018, and there was tons of volatility. And I still contend that once the Fed actually formally announces the taper and start do, does the taper, where they're still going to be buying, but just buying less of, and we see nat, more natural price discovery of bond yields, I think you will see a kick up in volatility, but that's just not here right now. So I think investors need to look through that volatility when it comes Find your spots, you know, buy good companies when that comes. But just don't be sitting here in cash waiting for a downturn. That just makes no sense whatsoever. Right. So, look, Pharma Jim, even those who cite the risks to the rally, the tapers coming, you know, inflation. We heard it a lot last week from not only the multitude of guests that we had to mark our 10th anniversary. Paul Tudor Jones, of course, on Squawk Box kind of led the charge of the, the risks that are out there relative to inflation. But even with all those out there, you still have a Ricky Sandler telling us last week it's hard to get too negative. Rick Reeder, stocks are going higher, could get another eight, five to eight percent. Look, even David Tepper, who told us no great asset class right now, said, I mean, you could still get stocks to go up. Let's listen to Tepper. We can react on the other side. I don't think there's any great asset classes right now. There's, you know, people on your show have talked about the risk of inflation and uh, the question is you know what the fed's doing i guess Paul pretty much said he's going to taper today um you know online when people expect it um you know the question is when will they raise interest rates and we're really what is the underlying inflation and how much is uh, endemic in the becoming endemic inside the economy and that's really what we're dealing with right now so i mean if you go down different asset classes um Stocks. I mean, I, I don't love stocks. I don't love bonds. I don't love junk bonds. I don't like, you know, 
you know, <laughs> it's a question. What's the um, what's the best looking you know investment versus other investments when nothing looks that great? Because Jim, he's a great risk manager, right? So he he looks at these asset classes and he says. The risk reward doesn't look all that great to me at all. And that's what I've made my living doing. So I can understand where he's coming from. At the same time, he pointed out to us, look, can stocks, you know, go up five, 10 percent from here? Sure. That doesn't mean I have to love the environment. It is hard to get overly negative, given the fact that there still is a tremendous amount of liquidity in the system and earnings thus far have been better than expectations. Yeah, I think I think you got to work hard to be negative here. And and I get what Dave is saying. He I, he's not saying it exactly, but I think he's fully invested. He's just holding his nose. It's either that or go with Mike Wilson, whose arguments now seem pretty stretched. I mean, he's focused at least in part on third quarter GDP, which is in the rearview mirror. We're looking forward. And what I see going forward is that the Delta variant has peaked. I see that the Fed, as Bryn just said, is going to continue buying bonds until June of next year, which is still stimulative. You've got, what is it, 10 million uh, job openings. That's positive for the economy. You've got to work awfully hard to be negative. To be positive right now, it's kind of easy. And you, you mentioned it, Scott. Earnings are once again coming in better than ex- expectations. That's kind of unusual that r- really with expectations being set as high as they have been, they're still being exceeded. The point being is the path of least resistance is higher here. Why fight that? Really, why fight that? Rob, is he right? I mean, I, I don't know. I've got, I've got oil at 85. It's on pace for its ninth weekly gain. I've got inflation concerns all over the place. Prices are up, up everywhere. Rates are moving up. Is there really nothing to be concerned about? No, there's a lot to be concerned about. I think the consistent thread between Rick Reeder and David Tepper was centered on rates. Reader thinks that at this at this point, rates are going to be well supported and therefore stocks can head higher. And Tepper said himself that if rates stay at these levels, that stocks can head higher. I think he said another 8%, Scott. So the, the, the pivot point is obviously off of rates and rates are going to be determined by what's happening as it relates to as it relates to inflation, right? And so I think as liquidity starts to come out of the market, it's irresponsible. Yes, it is hard not to love stocks, right? Because of the economic reopening, et cetera. But it's also irresponsible not to take advantage so that you don't have a situation like the fourth quarter of 2018, where there's a tap of the brakes and you give up all your gains for the year. And so what we're doing is we're taking advantage by rebalancing and still staying invested. We're just going to where we like more. We're also taking advantage of uh, what we think is going to be a, a, a rotation to some of these cyclicals. Yeah, but what if I said, though, what if I said like the, the Tepper view, it's like, well, you know, cash, you get nothing for it. High yield spreads are so tight. Rates are so low. Bonds, they look like a bubble valuations in stocks are so high and you know maybe that's going to change if rates continue to go up so again it's all about risk reward yeah and some of the best risk reward is in some of these yield alternatives you sell volatility when volatility spikes so we've been doing a lot of that we've been doing a lot of private real estate which has high cash flow characteristics and inflation protection. You're not getting a lot of bang from the buck 
in traditional fixed income. Although Gunlock said on your show last week, we get rates to, to 2% on the long bond, which you're going to see is a 30% positive return if there's a retracement of that. So it becomes a good hedge again. So I do believe that rates aren't going to get away from us. They're going to get persistently higher. But let's do some intelligent things at the periphery, which include real estate, you know, selling vol, adding non-traditional assets into the mix. And I think that's how we rebalance that because you don't want to rebalance into fixed income and get absolutely punched in the nose no, but when you when you suspect inflation. But maybe, maybe you don't look at, at those areas, Joe. You look in equity markets outside the U.S. Like Jeffrey Gundlach told us he was doing. Listen. I like European stocks. I've switched from U.S. stocks to European stocks several months ago for the first time in the history of Double Line, which is 12 years now. Uh, we, we bought European stocks, and it always feels really weird when you've avoided something and it's been the right thing to do, and then all of a sudden you decide to take the plunge. And it really hasn't worked owning European stocks instead of U.S. stocks since then, but it hasn't not worked. They basically have moved up in lockstep. Joe, I don't remember if you were on the day that Johnny Filion, the, the CEO of BNP Paribas America, was, was on this program a month ago or so and said he urged our viewers to look at European equities. Now, sure, he works for a European bank, but nonetheless, he looked at risk reward around the world. And he said that was where the opportunity was. Gundlach says the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Are we missing something? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Well, we are missing something. We're missing an opportunity. And a lot of the advisor calls that I'm doing at Virtus Investment Partners, they're asking about developed international, of which the European markets is such a significant portion. And there is capital that is flowing there. And I think it's rightfully so. You're seeing a significant improvement in the COVID trends. You've got, uh, you've got countries like uh, the Bank of England, which is going to be raising rates. But understand there was a significant underinvestment in terms of both positioning and then sentiment for years, Scott, has been so overly bearish towards Europe. Why? Because Europe really is not a technologically oriented economy. So a dramatic reversal in sentiment, a dramatic reversal in positioning from underweight, and a lot of these developed international markets like Europe are now being sourced for capital inflows from investors that previously would have went to the emerging markets. Well, because of the Chinese regulatory pressures, that's not what they're doing. So I completely agree with allocating capital right now in Europe. If you're going to go ex-US, I would even look at Japan as well. I think there's a tremendous rebuild of positioning that's going to unfold here over the coming months. Right. I got a record high for the Dow. I got a record high for the S&P. So as we're talking about investing outside the US, some are saying, why bother? Because I got record highs here. Let's, there you go. There's your, there's your real-time picture right now. 35,745, 68-plus points on the Dow, new record high. S&P 500, 45, that's a new record as well. Dow remaining on track for its best month, best month since March, as you saw there. S&P looking for its best month since November of 2020. Let's talk about a couple of moves we have on the committee before we go to break. Bryn, you bought more PayPal last week, just as today the company says, not interested in Pinterest. Yeah, well, I thought I thought it was a little bit overdone. You know, PayPal was over 300 a few months ago, and then it got last week about 20 percent, you know, off of those highs. They came out today and obviously said they're not interested. And the stocks had a decent move higher. 
I'm really excited about looking at their earnings next week, though. You have to remember, you know, PayPal has 392 million active users, and they're also very heavily in the crypto space. And so I think when their earnings come out, that's going to give the market some more confidence. But it is interesting that when they have announced today that they're not interested, the stock hasn't even remotely retraced. I think it was around 368, 370 when this whole Pinterest news came out. So clearly the market's still not liking something. But I took advantage of it and bought it last week in the low, in the low 350s. All right. We've got uh, PayPal 250 now. Okay. Uh, Rob Seachin. It's a big week for chips, too, right? AMD is reporting, Texas Instruments reporting, Taiwan Semi is new in your book. Absolutely. We've made a lot of money on AMAT and LRCX. Um, this uh, TSM's lag, the chip shortage is a, is a supply-demand dislocation that we think will continue to help the, uh, the sector's pricing, but we're rolling into a laggard uh, like TSM, which is more of a play on their new chip technology, help them grab market share from gorillas like Intel. They're more uh, microscopic and have a broader use case. So we, you know, we want to continue to play, but not in the uh, more expensive uh, stocks. All right, we're going to watch that space this week. We're watching the financials too. They're trading around record highs, up six percent in just a month. A bullish call now from the veteran analyst Mike Mayo. He raises his targets on a bunch of banks. We're going to go through them, and we're going to trade them, and we'll do it next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit ODFL.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash report. That is LinkedIn.com slash Halftime Report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to LinkedIn.com slash Halftime Report and get started. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. An Israeli court has ordered a six-year-old Aitan Baran to be returned to his family in Italy. The judge ruling that the boy should live with his aunt. That's after the child's grandfather took him to Israel after his parents and siblings were killed in a cable car accident in northern Italy. Facebook whistleblower Francis Hogan urging British lawmakers to pass legislation to curb misinformation on social media. She disputes Facebook's claims that it devotes sufficient resources to removing hate speech. The reality is it doesn't matter if Facebook is spending $14 billion in safety a year. If they should be spending $25 billion or $35 billion, that's the real question. And right now, there's no, there's no incentives internally 
that if I if you make noise saying we need more help, like people will not you will not get rallied around for help because everyone is everyone is underwater. And Microsoft says that the Russian group behind the SolarWinds hack has shifted its focus to the global supply chain. Microsoft says that the hackers have targeted some 140 technology service providers and resellers to try to gain access to customers' computer systems. And on the news tonight, the chances of a new SolarWinds-style breach and what companies are doing to stop the hackers. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. Scott, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, appreciate it. Let's go right to Elon Moy down in Washington with a news alert related to Senator Manchin. Elon, what can you tell us? Well, Scott, moderate Senator Joe Manchin, one of the key holdouts on that social spending package, said that he is optimistic that there could be an agreement on a conceptual framework by the end of the week. couple of caveats, though. He did say that he is still at $1.5 trillion for his price tag. That is lower than the number that the White House has been floating. He also said that some sticking points remain around paid leave as well as clean energy incentives. On the billionaire's tax, though, he said that he's open to anything that ensures that people pay their fair share. So Senator Joe Manchin there saying that he does believe they could reach a conceptual framework agreement by the end of the week, though he did not say how these final sticking points might end up. Scott. All right. Keep following this story. Elon, thanks so much. That's Elon Moy down in D.C. with the latest there. Wells Fargo's Mike Mayo is out with a bullish note on the banks, another one because he's already very bullish. But now he's raised the price targets on a couple of banks to street highs which is interesting in and of itself. Bank of America, the target goes to 60 from 55. J.P. Morgan to 210 from 200. Joe Terranova, who says, quote, in our notes, I'm massively overweight financials, and they're powering this market post-earnings. So you have a vested interest in all of this, Joe. What do you think about Now, the price targets don't go up all that much, but nonetheless, he's bullish on the space, and so are you. Without question. And it's been really the source of alpha generation in 2021 uh, going beyond technology itself. Just go back and think about when a 10-year treasury was 1.12. That was the time to really aggressively allocate towards financials. I think the surprise here, Scott, is that post-earnings, there has been such a strong follow-through. That's caught the analyst community and the investment community off guard. I don't think either one of those expected it. Now you're seeing a little bit of a capture where they're beginning to embrace not only the bullish sentiment that's being created, but a lot of the bullish earnings that were being reported, and you're seeing the investment flows going specifically towards there. So this is about money center banks. Bank of America, I own it. I completely agree with that call. But this is also about J.P. Morgan and uh, USB. This is beyond just money center banks. This is about the exchanges. This is about a Charles Schwab, a broker. It's about ICE. It's about, uh, it's about life insurance companies, principal financial group or regions financial group, if you want to look at a lot of the regions uh, banks. So financials don't have to worry about a rise in input costs that is going to pressure operating margins. Financials don't have to worry about the concerns related to low-income wage pressures. Uh, It is really, from a sentiment perspective, a tremendous opportunity to stay with these financials because we're nowhere even close to getting the universal respect towards the sector that the earnings and performance warrant. Okay. Um, Nicely said. You you mentioned J.P. Morgan in that 
speech, um, but you don't own it. <laughs> Why not? I do not. You got Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, Amex, Blackstone, SoFi, regional banks. Why not that one? You singled it out. Blackstone? No, J.P. Morgan. I think Morgan. you left Blackstone J.P. Morgan. I said Blackstone. <laughs> J.P. Morgan. No, but okay, you said J.P. You got, Morgan. You got that on the list. I did. I, I said J.P. Morgan because J.P. Morgan's going to continue to move higher. I know, but, why but you, you can't. It? You can't. Because, I mean, it's, it's like the 1992 U.S. basketball team, right? Not every player could be on the team. Look at some of the guys that didn't make the team. I can't own every financial there is. And then the exposure that I have uh, with, with the, the quality momentum index increases my financials. We're overweight there as well. So I can't own them all. All right. So it's the least desirable dream team member. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's, that's Scotty, a good way Scotty, to put it. I own them all and Christian Lightyear. Okay. I, so. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking that, but I'm glad you said it, not me. Okay? <laughs> okay. Um, Amy, J.P. Morgan, no disrespect. I mean, it's just a fact. I mean, uh, Amy, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, big positions yeah. in both. Yeah, we have big positions in both, and we're relatively neutral weight financials now. Um, after being underweight for a long time. Um, we think interest rates are moving these stocks. There's great M&A environment, obviously great IPO environment, plenty of liquidity out there. Longer term, though, we still think there's overcapacity in the financials. Um, so we're not overweight, but we like we like these two names. We think they're well positioned, still incredibly inexpensive compared to the rest of the market. Um, financials are up about 40% year to date, um, well ahead of the market tech more in line with the market. So we like that. Farmer Jim, what, what about this call from an obvious bull in, in the space? Is it just time to keep moving expectations ever so incrementally higher? I, I think so, Scott. You know, one of the things that's held banks back, actually, is that loan growth has been non-existent. But there's a good reason why that's the case. The federal government has been picking up the tab for everyone from consumers' credit card bills to uh, corporations' bank lending needs. That's coming to an end. And that means 2022 and beyond, banks are going to get their loan growth going again. Loan loss reserves are going down. We know that. So it's kind of a very benign environment. And particularly if we get infrastructure spending, that's going to beget more loan growth. So I think this is the right time to own these balance sheet banks. All right. Well, the Bitcoin ETF craze continues. What investors should watch from here. And as we go to break, we'll give you a check on the S&P sectors as we do that on a record setting day led by discretionary names today. We're back on the half right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
And welcome back to Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. The Bitcoin ETF craze continues. ProShares Bitcoin Strategy ETF, BITO, is less than a week old, already has north of $1 billion in assets. Let's talk with Steve McClurg. He's the CIO of Valkyrie Funds, which on Friday launched the second Bitcoin futures ETF, the Valkyrie Bitcoin Strategy ETF. Steve, ProShares Bitcoin Futures has got over $1.1 billion in assets. What, four days of trading? You launch your Bitcoin Futures product on Friday. You're like Avis. You have to try harder now. How is this Valkyrie Bitcoin Futures ETF different than ProShares? And how do you compete with some of the other big names that I know are coming right down the road? Yeah, well, look, given the CME limits that uh, we currently have, uh, there's a lot of room for us and others to come into the space. Uh, You've already hit a, a against those limits, right, with uh, 4,000 contracts in October, which means that you have to keep rolling out to the uh, future months. So we're going to see others having more tracking error if they have to go to those other months. So I think what we do is we keep ours very tight. We stick with the front months, and we show that we're tracking the, uh, uh, the futures really closely. Yeah. Yeah, you, you know, your success is part of the problem. You know, the, the big complaint among the crypto community was that the futures contract would not track the underlying Bitcoin very well. So what is the scorecard on that? How is it tracking? And you clear up just you mentioned it. But what futures contracts are you owning right now? You don't just own the front month anymore. You own stuff farther out. Right. Just clear that up for us. Yeah, Valkyrie only owns the front month at the moment. We're, we're really trying to keep in the front month at all times. Uh, obviously, that's that's not going to be possible if uh, the CME doesn't raise their limits. Uh, but at the moment, October, there's a 4,000 contract limit, uh, which is approximately $630 million in notional. Uh, so we're under that at the moment. And then November and December are currently at 4,000, uh, which is about $1.2 billion in notional at the moment. So we're, we're, we're trying to keep in that front month as, as, as much as possible. And in worst case, move out to the next month unless CME uh, increases its limit. Okay, this is going to be an issue, of course, coming down the road. We'll talk about this. We're going to have much more on the Bitcoin and the state of ETFs coming up on ETF Edge. Steve's going to join us. Tom Leiden, CEO of ETF Trends, will join us. We'll give you more information on those position limits. Who's next? Find out on ETFEdge.cnbc.com. 1 p.m. Eastern Time, halftime returns right after this. We have breaking news and take a look at shares of Tesla because the trillion dollar market cap club has a new member. And that's it right there. Tesla shares nine ninety five and twenty nine passing one trillion dollars in market cap for the first time ever. I'm sorry, Joe. I'm sorry to have to bring you that news today. Poor guy sold Tesla. Why is that? Poor guy sold Tesla on July 19th. It's only up 55 percent since then, Joe. Sorry. Mm. I mean to make you feel that's bad. That's that's that. Oh, Scott, guess what? You didn't make me feel bad at all. Uh, Tesla has been in the Joe T ETF since the beginning of the year. And I did a little trade in the middle of the year. Now, granted, selling it at that price on July 19th was not a good one because it's gone up 55 percent since then. So I could have really doubled uh, the holding that I had in Tesla. Uh, and I probably should have, but from a risk management perspective, that's not what I wanted to do. Look, overall, this is a phenomenal company. You had the news today surrounding Hertz, which is electrifying its rental fleet through the usage of potentially 100,000 Tesla vehicles. 
kudos to Elon Musk. So many have bet against the gentleman. He's done a fantastic job, and here they are at a trillion dollars. And guess what, Scott? A lot of the other companies, once you cross a trillion dollars, you generally don't look back, do you? So that indicates uh, further upside. Yeah, I'm just giving you a hard time. You handled that well. Uh, Bryn, you have <laughs> Kathy Wood's ARC in which Tesla is the largest holding. And, and by the way, John Ehrlichman has, has tweeted out a, a really fascinating stat. Tesla takes 18 years to cross $1 trillion in market cap. That's the quickest compared to the others who are in that group. Google, 21 years, Amazon, 24, Apple, 42, Microsoft, 44. And again, Tesla, just 18. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, first of all, Elon Musk is such a visionary and, you know, hats off to him and all his team. A trillion dollars is incredible. But I think Tesla's a great example. You know, we bought ARC back in March of 2020 for this exact reason is like Tesla was still the number one holding. But I would not have been able to buy Tesla and some of the other names that she owns in there and just hold them the whole time, I would have gotten scared out of the stocks. And so to me, that's one of the really big benefits that she offers in that ARKK is she really sticks to her knitting with her team. She has her thesis. And it's nice to see this company, you know, that so many people thought she was crazy years ago, really coming to fruition. And I think the Hertz news of the 100,000 cars they ordered, you know, is just further verification that, you know, these kind of companies you know, are so innovative. So we're happy we own it. We'll continue to own it. And hopefully we get some more names like Tesla in that portfolio. So Farmer Jim, you look at the other companies on the list, right? Alphabet and Amazon, Apple, et cetera. Everybody loves to own those. Why doesn't everybody love to own Tesla? Not much ownership, if any, on this show directly. Well, I can only speak for myself. And the, the problem that I have with it, my own personal problem, is that this is a stock we've already seen can go down 30 percent in the space of four to six weeks. And my problem is when I invest for clients, I have to say, why? Why did it go down 30 percent and why do we continue to hold it? And there's no valuation metric that I can attach to Tesla that will enable me to justify the price at which I buy it and then justify holding it if it goes down 30 percent. General Motors, I can justify that. Cleveland Cliffs, any of a number of other stocks, I can justify that. I just can't do it with Tesla. You know, I'm looking at a text right now from, from uh, your nemesis, Steve Weiss, who says <laughs> that he just bought Tesla calls this morning and they're up 100 percent. I'm trying to get him to call in and talk about why he did that and how long he's going to hold on to that. Um, Siege, no Tesla for you? You're a car guy, too. I'm a car guy. I'm not a golf cart guy. I don't. It's just it's not it, it's not for me. That's not why I don't own it. Right. That's not why I don't own it. I happen to I happen to agree with Chanos that it's it's, it's still an auto company. And there's a lot of great auto companies out there. There's a lot of great auto companies that have been playing catch up. I got to agree that this guy's an unbelievable visionary. He's got a cult following. Everything he does turns to turns to gold. He's got the he's definitely got the Midas touch. But uh, for me to own Tesla at these levels, you really have to believe it's an energy company. And when when you talk to Chamath or when you you've heard, you've heard Rick Reeder talk about the, the company, they really saw very early that it's more than an auto company. And I haven't gotten there yet. All right. Let's bring in Steve Weiss. He just just called in as we had asked him to. I appreciate that. Weiss, you there? I'm here. You still have the calls? 
I do, I do. I was emailing with Farmer Jim, uh, you know, in, against my uh, against my will, might I add, and it was mentioned this morning that I bought some Tesla calls. Uh, this is purely momentum play. I mean, I'm fascinated by the company. It's unbelievable. And what Elon Musk has done uh, is what nobody else has done in terms of SpaceX and this, et cetera. And I just think it goes through trillions, momentum market. And uh, the Hertz news was phenomenal for them. Uh, they go out, the calls expire in about a month. So I'll be out by then unless I roll them over. But earnings are out of the way, great quarter. Uh, not comfortable with the valuation, but never been comfortable with it, and that's kept me away from it. I've owned it periodically, shorted it periodically, always lost money in the short. But I bought the calls this morning, and they're up 100% already. So, sure, you tend to take profits off the table, but I think you well, let, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. You, you look at the others that have crossed a trillion dollars, and you can say, I can see it. You know, I can see why that X company has across the trillion dollars in market cap, the fundamentals match up to the story. Yet there are so many people out there, um, maybe not so many, but at least a number of loud people out there who say that the fundamentals make no sense for Tesla to be trading at a trillion dollar market cap. What are we to make of that, Steve? For viewers who watch our program, who follow a lot of y'all into different positions are saying, mm-hmm. Geez, I mean, I keep wanting to hate on this thing or say that the valuation is too crazy for my taste, and yet the stock just continues to go up and up and up and up. Stocks develop characteristics, and once they work through those characteristics and they get embellished in terms of the story, then the negatives that have been around on Tesla since $50 a share just don't work anymore, so it's time to give up the ghost. Valuation shorts have, have taken more people, more people's P&L down than I can count. So you never shorten valuation. It's a momentum stock. So as long as the fundamentals, as long as the momentum and the fundamentals keep going, and there's no sign of them letting up. As a matter of fact, they're getting better every day, as we saw with the Hertz. Well, they're not one in the. Are they one in the same? The, right. You're 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 talking about yeah. them as they're grouped together. I mean, there there is momentum, and then there's fundamentals. Right. Here, they're one and the same. That's a great point, Scott. Here, they feed off one another. Huh. And until they give you a reason to to get away from the fundamental story, the stock will keep going up. So, look, it made no sense at 700, the valuation. You're going to tell me all of a sudden it's going to make sense to have a ridiculously valued stock at 1,200? No. It's just going to keep going because that's how this stock is regarded by the market. Well, Musk is right now, Elon Musk is right now getting the last laugh. I'll tell you that. A lot of the naysayers, uh, a lot of the naysayers out there. Oh, Joe Terranova just emailed a question to me uh, for you. He says, how much of the recent move higher is related to oil rallying above 80? That's a good question. You think about that at all, Steve? You know, I don't. I think it is a good question. Maybe I should think about it, but I don't. And I just think the EV space has just moved so quickly. You take a look at the moves recently in Volkswagen and Porsche. I mean, their take-in is is sold out. Uh, Right now, you've got every company. Look, what held them back is charging stations. Now you've got every company committed to building out charging stations. Volkswagen, GM, Ford, plus all the companies that are just creating uh, charging stations, not making autos. 
So once you have that, I think, you know, that you're pulling adoption of EVs forward. So that's part of it. In terms of oil, yeah, I mean, if gas keeps going, you'll see so many more people adopt EVs. So that's a great point by Joe. It's not what I considered. I only look at this as a momentum. I hear you. Play. I hear you. Yeah. I got to run. I got to run, Weiss. You keep okay. us up to date with what you do with this, and we'll see you back on the show, um, hopefully in the day, I'm sure in the days ahead. That's Steve Weiss okay, calling great. in. We uh, take a quick break. We'll come back right after this. If you're just joining us, that is the big stock story of the moment. Tesla topping a trillion dollars in market cap for the first time ever, currently trading at nine hundred eighty eight dollars and ninety plus cents. It's a gain of nearly nine percent. Eighteen years is all it took for Tesla to get to that milestone. Our Phil LeBeau joining us quickly before we do final trades. Phil, it's nothing short of remarkable. And it's less, you know, a little over 10 years as far as being a publicly traded company uh, for Tesla to get to a $1 trillion valuation. Look, we all knew it was going to happen at some point, especially after the Q3 earnings came in better than expected, better than expected Q3 sales. And I think increasingly Wall Street, and you saw with Adam Jonas's note raising the price target, people were saying, OK, it's going to cross over a $1 trillion valuation. Now the question becomes, how much higher does this stock go from here? Yeah, no question. Phil, I know you're, you don't get out of that chair, Phil, because the exchange is going to lead with you, I think, uh, in talking about yeah. this as well. Sit tight. I'm going to do final trades real quick. But thank you for popping on real quick to talk right. about that story. All right. Give me final trades, guys, quick, if you can. Amy, you first. Um, Illumina, leading manufacturer of genomic sequencing machines. I think the Grail acquisition noise gives you a chance to get into a multi-decade grower. OK, Bryn. LIT, it's a global diversified full vertical of lithium for the structural, um, structural tailwind of EVs. Okay, Joe? AMD, staying long. All right, Pharma Jim? Qualcomm reports next week. All right, Rob Seachin? JPM. All right, guys, good to see everybody. Again, the exchange coming up right now. More on that breaking news with Tesla topping a trillion dollars in market cap for the first time ever. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, The ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.